Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be bringing you an episode about space objects. And as we often do, we're going to be uh, we're going to be starting off here by talking a little bit about the mythology that is related to these space objects. Rob, do you mind if I start with a reading from the Iliad? Oh, let's do it. Okay, so I want to read a passage from the Iliad Book 4 from the excellent translation by Caroline Alexander. And this is uh, describing a uh, a big uh, host of warriors raging for battle. It begins, But the Trojans, as the numberless ewes of a wealthy man, stand in their pen to be milked of their white milk, bleeding incessantly as they hear the cries of their lambs, so the war cries of the Trojans rose through the broad army, for the speech of all the men was not the same, nor was there one voice, but the tongues were mixed in confusion, the men were summoned from many places." These men Ares drove on, and gleaming-eyed Athena drove the Achaeans, and terror, and panic, and strife, raging, insatiable, the sister and companion of manslaughtering Ares. She is small when she first rises up, but in the end she leans her head against the heavens, even as she strides upon the earth." Ooh, I love that section about the, uh, the 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 bad sister there. When she's small when she first rises up, but then when she mm. she gets big, she leans her head against the heavens and got her feet on the earth. So uh, that is referring to one of the companions of Ares, the 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 god of war in this passage. It is written in this translation as strife, the abstract concept, but. In the Greek, of course, Strife is also the goddess Eris, and I love that final couplet about her. Uh, but there are a couple of other concepts that are mentioned there that also have personifications. It's not just Eris, the, the goddess of Strife. There's also terror and panic that are driven on by Ares. And these concepts have the godly personifications of the gods Phobos and Demos. So Phobos and Demos are each an abstract concept representing a human state of mind or something you might witness uh, on the battlefield or leading up to it. But they're also these heavenly persons in the Greek mythology. And to read another passage from the Iliad about uh, their, their representations, also from the Caroline Alexander uh, translation. Then he took up his man-surrounding, much-emblazoned, forceful shield, a thing of beauty, around which ran ten rings of bronze, and on it twenty pale-shining discs of tin, and in the very center was one of dark enameled blue, and crowning this a snake-bristling gorgon face stared out with dreadful glare terror and rout about her and the shield's baldric was of silver and on it a blue dark serpent writhed with three heads turned in all directions growing from a single neck so here uh, th this actually ties back into the episodes that we re-aired pretty recently i think about the gorgon medusa and how uh the the head of the gorgon of of medusa is widely represented in, in Greek art and in Greek literature as a feature of Greek art mentioned in the literature as this, uh, like, uh, this thing that would be on the aegis of Athena or of Zeus, a terrifying image looking out at you. But mentioned alongside the face of the Gorgon here are terror and rout. Again, I think these would be Phobos and Demos. Yeah, Phobos and Demos. So, uh, like you said, this episode, we're getting spacey. We're also getting a little mytho mythological here, especially at the start. Phobos and Demos are the names of the two moons of the planet Mars. Uh, and uh, so this this marks a return for us. Uh, in, in the past, I want to say it's been a couple of years at least now, we did episodes exploring the moons of Jupiter and then uh, other another episode or episodes exploring the moons of Saturn. And we always intended to venture on to other moons, and here we are now, exploring the moons of Mars. Uh, much like the space agencies of Earth, we have long wanted to return a sample from the moons of Mars and, and have failed to do so. But, you know, maybe the time has finally come. Oh, don't curse us. We might have a technological problem uh, during the recording or retrieval of this episode. Right. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm so excited to be talking about a, this gorgeous couple of space turnips in orbit around Mars. And, uh, and so this is going to be the first of a pair of episodes. Be sure to join us for both. 
Yes. Uh, and even though it deals with two moons, it's just going to be its very much a part one and part two. It's not like one episode is Phobos and one episode is Deimos, as you will see. But before we even get back into Phobos and Deimos, I want to start by talking just a bit about our naming of Mars itself. Um, so today we you know, largely refer to the fourth planet from the sun as Mars. But of course, Mars can be seen in the night sky without the aid of a telescope. So it's gone by many names and has been factored into numerous pantheons and uh, cosmological systems throughout human history. Right. Mars, because it is, uh, it can be observed through naked eye astronomy, it was known to the ancient Mesopotamians. Yeah, there was uh, the god Nergal, uh, a god of of plague and war, the one that kind of evolved apparently from a war god into a a netherworld deity. Uh, but this was a this was a, a, a deity that was uh, recognized by the Sumerians. Likewise, the Greeks knew it as the star of Aries, and we'll of course talk more about Aries here in a bit. Uh, in Hinduism, Mars was associated with Mangala, a god of war that interestingly uh, seems to encompass aspects of war related to anger and hot-headedness, but also to stability and balance. Hmm. And then uh, the ancient Egyptians connected Mars to Horus, the celestial falcon and embodiment of, of uh, kingship. Uh, Geraldine Pinch points out in Egyptian mythology that Egypt's earliest kings were depicted as hawks preying on their enemies. So here, once once more, uh, we can easily connect this to a motif of warfare um, uh, of one form or, that, or another. Uh, though, interestingly enough, in Chinese traditions, uh, Mars was apparently merely associated with the element of fire. Oh, yeah, because in the Chinese astronomical traditions, uh, different heavenly bodies tend to be associated with, like, the elements of Earth, right? So, like, one planet will be fire, one planet will be wood, one planet will be uh, metal or something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so they're important within um, you know Chinese cosmology and Chinese astrology, though I've also read it uh, argued that the planets have have maybe less of a significance in Chinese cosmology versus uh, their their place, especially in um, in in, like, in you know some of these other models that we're looking at here, mm-hmm. where they're closely associated with very important gods. Coming back to the idea that uh, some of the earliest kings of Egypt were depicted as hawks preying on their enemies, I was just thinking how good it would be if you just made a slight rotation on that, and they were portrayed as vultures vomiting on their enemies. Yeah, well, you know, there's it's not not that huge of a difference, right? And also seems kind of fitting. So, uh, and, and it would be in keeping with with what we've been discussing here, right? Because so far we we've been talking about connections to um, ideas of blood and fire, and of course this inevitably seems to stem from the fact that Mars appears as a red, quote-unquote, star in the night sky. Uh, even here in, in Atlanta, uh, where we have uh, terrible light pollution at night, you can often go out and see that, that red, gleaming um, eye of Mars out there in the distance. I think my eyes must be a little bad because I've never personally been able to notice the redness of Mars when I've looked at it with the naked eye, but I believe other people do see it. Yeah, I mean it's 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 faint, but it's it's noticeable, you know? Like you mm-hmm. can you can tell that there's something different going on compared to all the other stars in the sky. It stands out. And since it has that red color, you know, it makes sense to associate it with blood and and fire and violence and all of these things tied up with it. So, the name Mars, of course, uh uh arises from the the Roman tradition, and roughly speaking, you can say that uh the the Roman god of war uh, is Mars, and then the Greek god of war is Ares, and these these are basically two names for the same thing. Uh, but it, it's it's really worth driving home that that Mars differs from Ares, and that while Ares was a god of brutality and war in its most base and chaotic state, uh, which I think is 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 well represented in in uh, in, the, in in his uh, usage in uh, the Iliad, uh, the Roman Mars, however, had a different character. He was warfare. Uh, as just and orderly, you know, uh, he he mm-hmm. was warfare that uh, brings um, a sense of balance to the world that you know. Warfare is viewed by an imperial culture, you know, where, exactly. where yeah. war is the instrument that demonstrates your greatness. 
Yeah, Mars is therefore a military deity that maintains order and protects agriculture. Mars is uh, is, is is very closely associated with agriculture in the Roman uh, tradition. Um, so he upholds while Ares threatens and tears down. Um, so it's it's interesting because they are like two sides of the same thing, uh, which which I think the Hindu god Mangala seems to encompass both of these aspects. Here we see this divergence in Ares and in uh, Mars. Um, I was I was reading a little bit more. Uh, there's a there's a book called Classical Mythology A to Z. Um, yeah, that's quite good. And uh, it, in one of the the ways they describe uh, Ares is that he is uh, he's a lord or a god of the screams of the dying. Uh, so you know it's it's not so so yeah. Mars is is the god of uh, of war is great, war is good, and then uh, Ares is the um, war. What is it good for? Uh, deity, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. He's just. Um, he he is the worst of the pantheon. Uh, uh, is Ares the Lord of the Screams of the Dying? Sounds very like a seventies exploitation movie uh, epithet mm-hmm. for him, right? You know, he's yeah. um, Ares and Ares again. Yeah, and I guess it does come down like yeah, Ares is the very nature and heart of war and violence, where Mars is more like what what use can war be put to what does it what does it do what can it accomplish uh you know very much a whitewashing of war mm-hmm. now uh, as with jupiter uh, that we you know which we discussed in our recent episode mars has many epithets or aspects um so uh, instead of having you know a whole bunch of different deities representing different shades of the same thing you have different versions of say jupiter and in this case uh, there are different versions of mars as well such as Mars uh, Gradivus, uh, the marching Mars. So this would be the Mars that a soldier in the field would swear by. Okay. Because, uh, you know, as with Jupiter, uh, deities are important for swearing and making oaths and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, another major Mars is, is Mars Pater, uh, protector of agriculture. And this, of course, is, is literally Mars the father. And this is also very notable because in Roman myth, he is the father. Uh, Mars is the father of Romulus and Remus, the twin founders of Rome. So in the Roman tradition, Mars isn't just the, the god of, of noble war he is also the ancestor of the roman people he is the patriarch of the empire exactly yeah so he yeah he he is the empire um now this is uh this is where it gets kind of curious right uh, and i imagine a number of people are already thinking about this so in the roman tradition the primary war god mars has two highly important sons romulus and remus so wouldn't it make more sense to name the two moons of Mars after Romulus and Remus rather than going to the Greek, tra- hopping over to the Greek tradition and drawing on the two, uh, two of the sons of Ares? Wouldn't that imply that one of the moons has to kill the other moon? Um, well, you know, as we'll get into in this episode or the next, that's not a crazy idea <laughs> considering <laughs> uh, the house of Mars over there, orbitally speaking. I may be remembering my mythology wrong. I, I think uh, things go bad for Remus. <laughs> well, um, uh, it's worth, worth noting, outside of Star Trek lore, uh, Romulus is the outer moon of the main belt asteroid 87 Sylvia, and Remus is the inner moon. Sylvia is named for Rhea Sylvia, the mythical mother of the founders of Rome. Uh, so, it's, you mm. know, kind of, kind of, the, the, this was all filled in later. Oh, well, um, while, while we're doing a roundup, I should also mention that uh, that passage from the Iliad I read at the top that had that great couplet about Eris, the goddess of strife, uh, there is actually an object named for Eris as well. It's the, ah. uh, the dwarf planet Eris that is not quite a planet, but is a nearly nearly spherical asteroid yeah i guess it's uh you know basically we're just going to keep finding uh new things to name uh so if you're if you're out there any members of the the greek or roman pantheon and you don't have something named after you yet just hold on just be patient um immortal beings that you are we'll get around to you eventually wait a second i i feel like i just said something wrong i think i called eris an asteroid As, uh eris is not an asteroid er, eris is a nearly spherical trans-neptunian object apologies ah. about that 
You're apologizing to the planet or the deity? I don't want to be roped in by strife here. You don't <laughs> want to make an enemy of strife. All right. So, yeah, obviously, instead of naming Mars's two moons uh, after uh, Romulus and Remus, uh, the tradition ends up drawing on the names of two of the many children of Ares in Greek mythology. So, partnered with Aphrodite, he fathered uh, Deimos, Phobos, of course, and we'll get into them in a second, but also Eros, or love, uh, Anteros, requited love, and Harmonia, who represents harmony. Uh, and he's also said to have produced other children by other mothers. So there's a, you know, there's a, there's a vast brood. Now, I believe Ares, uh, isn't it the case that Aphrodite was actually married to Hephaestus, the forge god, the, the equivalent of the Roman Vulcan, and that uh, Ares is sort of her lover on the side? Or do, are they officially an item later on? There's a lot of drama there. Yeah. I seem to recall a myth about uh, Hephaestus making like a, a net of chains to catch them in the act or something. Yeah. I mean, it, it fits the nature of Ares. Again, he's, he's really the, the, the scum of the pantheon here. Um, but let's talk a bit about the twins, Deimos and Phobos, uh, both deities very much in the Greek tradition of war gods. Uh, while Deimos is traditionally associated with terror and dread, Phobos is fear and panic, though both of them may be collectively thought of as deities of fear. Uh, they ride beside their father into battle, along with uh, the goddess of discord, Eris, uh, who we mentioned already. Mm. But the twin brothers of fear are uh, referred to in several key works. We already mentioned the Iliad. They also show up in Hesiod's The Shield of Heracles. And um, if, if, if uh, memory serves, I think in The Shield of Heracles, they actually, like their, their father is wounded on the battlefield and they, they, they drag him off the battlefield. So they're very much his, his attendants, his uh, personal guard, mm -hmm. the warriors that go into battle beside him. Um, but they are also just horrifying specters. You know, they are gods of trauma and the psychological dimensions of war. Um, but they do seem to revolve around their father on the battlefield in a way befitting of moons. So perhaps they're ultimately a better fit uh, uh, than the Roman figures of Romulus and Remus. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about them is that they represent two distinct types of fear that are uh, things that you need to manage differently if you're writing horror fiction, say, mm -hmm. like uh, that Phobos, Phobos is, is panic. Phobos is sometimes translated as rout, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, getting routed in battle. You're just like, you know, you're terrified and you're running away. Whereas Demos is dread, the, the terror that builds in anticipation of, of something horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and, and I also think it's probably more fitting because Romulus and Remus are a little more they're a little more fleshed out as as figures, mm -hmm. whereas Demos and Phobos are a, are a bit more abstract. You know, like we don't have as many tales about them and stories about them that that, uh, you know, that stick with us. They are more, you know, harshly formed. They are and then they themselves are these kind of like fragile, fractured nightmare beings Um and, and I think that's very befitting of the sort of moons that we're going to be talking about uh, in these episodes. Sorry, one thing. I, I just got distracted wondering about, wait a minute, are are the moons of Mars especially scary as moons? Not in a way <laughs> that I can think of, but they are rather mysterious. I, I think they are some of the weirdest, most mysterious objects in the solar system. You can sort of, uh, uh, if looking at it sideways, connect that sense of mystery to a kind of creepiness about them. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would... I would say that less frightening as more just like, yeah, mysterious and also like, you know, clearly the product of violence. And in the case of one of the moons, like, you know, just destined for destruction. It's just on a on a collision course with destruction. Um, you know, and, and uh, I, I think it pairs well with this idea of like two shattered beings that serve um, this horrible God that, you know, that represents some of the worst aspects of, of mortals, except in immortal form. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, we'll come back uh, throughout these episodes with comparisons to the uh, the mythic twins. The double Grima worm tongues of the Mars system. Yeah, yeah. I imagine there's some other good comparisons to make. Uh, yeah, like, uh, you know, the, the, the sons of some, you know, awful ruler. There might be a good Dune reference in there somewhere. I'm not sure. Oh, I see. Like they're the, the Beast Raban and, uh, and Fade Rautha. Yeah, though I don't know, Fade has a lot of things together in ways that these, these two don't, so I'm not sure. 
All right. Well, let's talk about the discovery of Phobos and Deimos. Like we said, Mars has been something that people throughout human history have looked up and seen and, um, and attributed various meanings and interpretations to, but not so with Phobos and Deimos. Uh, these were, were not to be discovered for some time. Right. You have to get well into the age of the telescope to be able to see these objects from Earth because they are both very small and very close to Mars. And when uh, you're looking at Mars in the night sky, it's reflecting a lot of light and it's sort of going to uh, to blast out any small objects nearby it. You're just not going to be able to distinguish them from it. Yeah. So it just simply wasn't possible. Um they, these uh, two moons were discovered, though, in 1877 by American astronomer uh, Asaph Hall, who lived 1829 through 1907. Now, Hall was, was lar- is an interesting character because, uh, for one thing, he was largely a self-taught astronomer. He was not a gentleman scientist of the day, but rather the impoverished son of a clockmaker. His father died when he was uh, young, so he had to leave school uh, in order to be – he was going to become an apprentice to a carpenter. Uh, But later on, he ended up taking math classes at New York Central College. And from there, he took a job at the Harvard College Observatory and then became an assistant astronomer at the U.S. Naval Observatory. And eventually, he was made a professor. So he had a really – interesting um, career path, you know, an ascension story. So, uh, you know, on one hand, it's, it's just neat to see that kind of trajectory with a, a, an individual who plays into the history of astronomy like this. Okay. So the way it went down is in 1877, during Mars's uh, closest approach, uh, his wife, uh, Angeline uh, Stickney, who was a mathematician and a suffragist, encouraged him to engage in the search for the Martian moons and to, and to keep engaging in the search. Because he had, in his writings, he apparently alludes to this saying, well, you know, there's just seemed to be so such a small chance of him seeing anything. Um, you know, he was considering just giving it up. But his wife encouraged him on. And so he thought he made out Martian moons on August 10th, but he couldn't be sure. It, you know, it was, I think the weather was weird that night, so he didn't have the, the clarity that he wanted. But then on August 12th, he discovered Deimos, and on August 18th, he discovered Phobos. Both, both of these discoveries uh, were made using equipment at the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. Interesting. Now, since he found them, he got to name them. Uh, but as far as I can tell, there's not much more to it than that. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I couldn't find anything about him having any real reasoning for choosing these two names over Romulus and Remus. Uh, if he ever considered other names, if he, if he named them in error, I don't know. Uh, I, I think ultimately just, they're good names, though. Just really scared that night. He'd been reading some EC comics or what would be... Uh, <laughs> Correct for the time period. He, he was reading The Great God Pan or whatever. Actually, I don't know if that was out at the time. I mean, ultimately, he uh, you know he could have tried to call them Tweedledum and Tweedledee. So uh, mm-hmm. I guess it's just as well that he went with uh, Phobos and Deimos. Now, uh, this is an interesting little side note. I can't find a what felt to me like a really solid source on this, but a profile of his wife, uh, Stickney, on the official U.S. Navy page used to state uh, that as she was helping her husband with the calculations and all of this, she asked for a man's wage as compensation, and he refused, so she quit. Um, this is something <laughs> but she you stayed married? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, you know, it's not like uh, – it, it's really hard to say. I couldn't find any more information about this, so I don't know if this is a joke, uh, if this is, you know – totally uh, made up mm-hmm. or, you know, if what we're talking about was a serious argument or more of like kind of a fun story that, you know, that 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 spouses tell. I don't know. But um, uh, at the very least, though, Phobos's largest crater ended up being named for her uh, Stickney Crater, which we'll get back to in a bit. So, you know, I guess ultimately her work paid in exposure, at least. Ooh. Now, um, others were looking for those moons as well and speculating about their existence. And I ran across a a really interesting story about all this that that I read on Stephen Novella's uh, Neurologica blog. And this concerns the moons of Mars and Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift? Yeah, yeah. So that would be long before uh, this – this would be over 100 years before the discovery of the moons, right? Yeah, this goes back – this book uh, came out in 1726. Wow. And have you ever read Gulliver's Travel, Joe? Yeah, it's been a long time. I read it in college. Um, I took a class in college, so we read a lot of like uh, John Dryden and Alexander Pope and and, and Swift. And uh, I think we read Gulliver's Travels for that class, or if not, we read large sections of it. 
Mm-hmm. It's one that I've never read. I'm just sort of familiar with it by little bits and pieces that I've absorbed through <laughs> through mm-hmm. other sources. Uh, well, so Gulliver's Travels, if you've never read it, it's about a – it's largely satirical, but it's about a sailor who goes to these weird lands that end up being sort of humorous portraits of – things that Swift Swift observed about the world. So there are the Lilliputians who are tiny. And then I think at some point he goes to a place called Brobdingnag, if I remember correctly, that's full Mm -hmm. of giants. And then he also goes to a place uh, where I don't remember the name of it, but it's the place where the Yahoos are, where the idea of the Yahoos comes from. These like Ah. sort of, uh, sort of uh, uh, crass apes. (laughs) Well, uh, at one point in the book, the Lilliputians, uh, catch him up on things and inform him that, quote, they have likewise discovered two lesser stars or satellites which revolve around Mars, whereof the innermost is distant from the center of the primary exactly three of his diameters and the outmost five. The former revolves in the space of 10 hours and the later in 21 and a half. Holy cow, that's not that far off. <laughs> Yeah, and that this is what um, Novella writes about in this blog post. He points out, quote, Phobos and Deimos have orbits which are about 1.4 and 3.5 diameters from Mars's center, respectively. The, the Lilliputians gave figures of 3 and 5. The periods of Phobos and Deimos are 7.7 and 30.3 hours, respectively, while, while the Lilliputians reported 10 and 21.5. These figures are correct to within an order of magnitude, which is another way of saying that they are wrong. They are reasonable guesses, obviously, but do not betray any special knowledge. Because basically what he's exploring in this blog post is like the, the question, well, did Swift know? Like, why is Swift, why did Swift get Get this right or sort of right or mostly right, depending on how you're you're skewing it. Oh, Rob, I realize I may have led you astray by talking about the Lilliputians because I think there are actually two different things. There are the Lilliputians and the Laputans, and I think this is the the Laputans. Ah, uh, okay. I think uh, the people of Laputa are on a flying island, whereas the Lilliputians are somewhere else. They're they're the people who are tiny. Compared to okay. Humans. Our apologies to the Lapushans <laughs> and the Lilliputians. Um, yeah, I ended up going. I, I, when you mentioned Lilliputians, I ended up going with them because it makes me think of um, Oliver Sacks talking about uh, Lilliputians in his book uh, Hallucinations. Oh, I don't recall that. Uh, having to do with like seeing tiny people. Uh, oh, okay. As hallucinations, sometimes due to I think. I can't remember if that tied into migraines or not. But anyway, hmm. fabulous book, Hallucinations. Well, yeah, this is really interesting. So I guess the question is, like, how how close do you have to be in guessing stuff like this to, to really be impressive? I don't know. This seems pretty impressive for not actually knowing anything. <laughs> well, Novella uh, points out that, first of all, it could just be an educated guess um, based for, for starters on how Mercury and Venus have zero moons. Earth has one. And then Jupiter and Saturn uh, were known to have many moons. Therefore, perhaps two felt about right, you know? Yeah, Like that you needed right. something between one and many. Uh, so why not two? Yeah. Uh, and of course, yeah, you said that it was known that these outer planets had many moons. Like we'd known that Jupiter had moons since uh, Galileo. Right. But Novella presents uh, another idea that is pretty interesting. Uh, the, the, it, and this, this gets kind of – this is a really weird concept uh, uh, because it has to do with um, – uh, anagrams and um, and so forth. But uh, the idea here is that Swift may have gotten the notion from Johann Kepler, who concluded at one point that Mars had two moons based on a misunderstood cryptic anagram that Galileo devised. What? So um, basically... In Kepler's 1610 memoir, he misconstrued this anagram that Galileo put together, you know, all these, these, uh, these letters that you're supposed to rearrange into their proper form, that he had sent his friends announcing the discovery of Saturn's rings. And instead of getting, and I'm not going to uh, uh, read the, um, the original uh, phrase here, but instead of getting, I have observed the highest, most distant planet, Saturn, to have a triple form, instead he got... Hail, twin companionship, children of Mars, or <laughs> I greet you, double knob, children of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> I greet you, double knob. Sure, that's what he was writing. 
Yeah. Uh, so in, anyway, wow. that's that's interesting. Um, uh, Novella also points out that Voltaire also wrote about Mars having two moons in the 1752 book uh, Micromegas. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from that. Quote, But let us now return to our travelers. Upon leaving Jupiter, they traversed a space of around 100 million leagues and approached the planet Mars, which, as we know, is five times smaller than our own. They swung by two moons that cater to this planet, but have escaped the notice of our astronomers. I know very well that Father Castell will write, perhaps even agreeably enough, against the existence of these two moons, but I rely on those who reason by analogy. These good philosophers know how unlikely it would be for Mars, so far from the sun, to have gotten by with less than two moons. Okay, so I guess this is a work of fiction as well? Yes, yeah, and I think of of similar... uh, uh, I, I've read Voltaire, but not this particular work, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, a similar satire and fantasy. Well, good job, Jonathan Swift. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so he, he basically got it right. But uh, anyway, that, that none of this has anything, you know, directly to do with the nature of Deimos and Phobos, but it, it's interesting nonetheless. All right. Well, maybe we should talk about some of the physical characteristics of Phobos. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to mostly start with Phobos and we'll get into Deimos a bit more in the second episode, as well as more stuff about Phobos, because ultimately they are twins um, uh, and they have a lot in common. So if Phobos represents the, the psyche ravaged by war in, uh, in Greek mythology, then it might be fitting, uh, you know, given the nature of the moon named after him. Uh, because, you know, we're talking about a shattered wreck destined to battle its father and perish in the conflict. Now, Phobos is the larger of Mars's two moons. It is 17 by 14 by 11 miles or 27 by 22 by 18 kilometers in diameter. And its shape is is pretty irregular. It it doesn't look like whatever whatever you're imagining. If you haven't seen an image of Phobos, it doesn't look like that. It looks more like a space potato. Yeah, uh, I've seen people say potato. I would say kind of turnip. Or if it is a potato, it's not a russet potato. I think it's more like a Yukon gold. Yeah, it it doesn't look very spherical. Um, Now, it seems to be made of C-type rock, similar to uh, blackish carbonaceous chondrite asteroids. And it is, uh, it's absolutely battle-scarred. I mean, it's just, there are various tracks on it caused by landslides that have occurred, it seems, but its, its surface has just been bombarded into dust by impacts. Uh, and its largest crater, again, is named for Stickney, and it is um, 6.2 miles or 10 kilometers in diameter and seems to have been almost violent enough to have just destroyed it outright. Yeah, if you're trying to picture it in your head, the Stickney Crater is so large that it essentially is one side of this moon. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's just it, it it looks really beat up, and it even has these these things that look very much like battle scars, like it's been scratched by an enormous space cat, and these were likely caused by uh, you know various collisions and violence as well. So it's just totally beat up but like the son of a brutal war god it just keeps going on it's just it keeps clinging to life and uh, and keeps orbiting its uh, its father it completes three orbits per day <laughs> and uh, it, ha- it has also has the tightest orbit of any known moon orbiting at a mere 6,000 kilometers or 3,700 miles to put that in comparison our moon is 238,855 miles away or 384,400 kilometers away yeah, so Phobos is really close to the surface of Mars. Uh, Deimos is a good bit farther out, but Phobos, the distance from the surface of Mars to Phobos is actually comparable to distances between recognizable landmarks on the surface of the Earth. Like if there was a road, you could drive from Mars to Phobos in a couple of days. Like for comparison, Google Maps tells me that the driving distance between Miami and Vancouver, so basically, you know, sort of diagonally across North Mm -hmm. America, I mean, not even all the way up to Alaska, uh, that's about 3,400 miles or roughly 5,500 kilometers. So just a little bit shorter than the distance Mm -hmm. from Mars to Phobos. Phobos is right in there. Right. So while we've joked about extraterrestrial skies and how large planets sometimes appear in the sky in various movies or works of sci-fi art, if it's like Battle for Endor or 
basically any location in the video game No Man's Sky. Mm -hmm. Uh, Despite all that, Mars would actually be quite huge in the sky of Phobos if you were standing on its surface. Oh, yeah. I actually looked this up to see if I could find somebody who had done like a a scale attempt to create that view, and I could not find it. Maybe it exists somewhere out there. But yeah, it would be absolutely huge. Because to look at it from the other way, Phobos is, as moons go, extremely tiny. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. again, you're looking at like like 20-something kilometers in width, depending on which side is facing you. Um, so, so this is much, much smaller than moons we're familiar with, like Earth's moons or like the, the – or Earth's single moon. I didn't mean to suggest there were multiple. Or the, the larger moons of Jupiter or something like that. But from the surface of Mars – Phobos appears relatively large. I, I think I remember uh, reading somewhere that it was. It looks about a third as big as the moon usually looks from the surface of Earth, but it, it's so much smaller. And the reason it looks that big is just how close it is. Yeah. And here's the an added factor to all this. It's getting closer. Uh, Phobos edges closer to Mars at a rate of six feet or 1.8 meters every century. So in 50 million years, it will probably either crash into Mars or break up and become a ring of debris around Mars. I hope it goes the ring route, personally. Yeah. <laughs> either way, I think I, I really like the mythic synergy of this because I can easily imagine, you know, this terror oozing war god Phobos just being destined to fight his own terrible father and perish one way or another in the attempt, you know? Yeah, you're not going to win, dude. Yeah. But he, but he has to. Like it's his nature. Like this is, this is what he's been, been you know, raised and traumatized to do. Uh, what else could possibly happen? Now, of course, given the time frame involved here, fifty million years, you know, humans don't have to worry about. You know, it's not one of these things where like, oh, we better not try and land anything on Phobos because it's it's doomed. Well, you know, not, you know, not anytime soon. Um, and there have been some proposals that have sought to use Phobos as a kind of staging ground for the exploration of Mars itself, you know, per, perhaps for robotics, for example. Yeah, and there are a lot of uh, – we can talk more about this in the second episode in this series, but there are a lot of reasons that Phobos might be really a, a, a great place to try to stage space missions. One reason, for example, is that it would be – if you're trying to get something back from Mars or to another place in the solar system from Mars, it's much easier to get off of Phobos than it is to get off of the surface of Mars itself. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's basically – it's like a – you know, it's, it's a space station. Yeah. Um, now, Phobos has no atmosphere, um, and also gravity on Phobos uh, is, is, is pretty weak. Uh, according to NASA, quote, Phobos has only one uh, one-thousandth as much gravitational pull as Earth. A 150-pound or 68-kilogram person would weigh two ounces or 68 grams there. Um, Yet uh, they do point out that uh, NASA's Mars Global Surveyor has shown evidence of landslides. Uh, you know, we mentioned that that earlier of boulders and dust that's fallen back down to the surface after being blasted uh, due to various impacts. So the, the gravity there is in play, but it is you know it is it is slight compared to the gravity of Earth or certainly uh, other uh, moons out there. Right. Phobos is about of the the mass that if you were to jump on Phobos, you could jump really high, but you would eventually fall back down. Right. <laughs> now, like our moon, the twins of Mars are both locked with the same face pointed at their planet. Uh, the day side gets reasonably warm from a human perspective. I think I saw it compared uh, in, in one NASA document to a a winter day in Chicago, while the night side gets extremely cold. Uh, though, again, there's no atmosphere, so we're talking about surface temperatures here. Uh, you know, th- there's no air to do anything there. Right. The air can't hold the warmth. You're just talking about, like, being blasted by radiation and, I guess, whatever is radiating uh, back up off of the, the rock beneath your feet. All right. So in in discussing Phobos, we should point out as well, and we'll probably get more into this maybe in the second episode, is that as of today, as of this recording, no one has actually been to Phobos. Certainly not in person, but even attempts to send probes directly to Phobos have failed for various reasons. Uh, The Russians made two attempts in the late 80s, Phobos 1 and 2. Uh, those failed uh, seemingly, I think, for technical reasons. And then in 2011, they attempted to send another one, um, Phobos Grunt, to Phobos. 
Uh, that's spelled F O B O S G R U N T in, uh, uh, in the, uh, the at least the, the English language literature. It was going to collect 200 grams of soil, but that didn't quite work out. Yeah, it was a proposed sample return mission. It would have been really cool if we could have gotten some of Phobos back here to Earth to study, but it failed. Uh, I think it actually was it failed in orbit before it began its journey to Mars and just ended up stuck in Earth orbit without the uh, ability to travel. Now, various other missions have been proposed and are being considered, but nothing is launched uh, as of this recording. Mm. Uh, but uh, missions to Mars have and will continue to capture images of the moons. Uh, you know, if, for starters, like once uh, again, it's it's fairly visible in the sky if you catch it at the right time. So that has been one of the ways that we've captured images of it also via flybys. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention about Phobos Grunt was actually uh, it, it was uh, a Russian mission, but it was also a joint venture with the the Chinese space uh, program. And so the Chinese had uh, part part of the mission as well. And then also part of what they were going to do was they were going to uh, they had some microorganisms aboard and they were going to study how the round trip from the uh, from Earth to the moons of Mars and then back to Earth affected these microorganisms that were on the payload. I think the Planetary Society had a had a, a small uh, experiment mm -hmm. that was aboard as well. Yeah, that, yeah. Was that the was that the microorganisms? That may have been actually. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But at any rate, it it did not come to pass. Uh, so we did not get to bring anything back from the surface of Phobos. We didn't get to uh, have anything directly investigate the surface of Phobos, uh, which is a shame because there, there are some interesting features there, to say the least. Oh, yeah. So if we were to begin a curiosity tour of the surface of Phobos, I think one of the, the top things to look at would be the Phobos monolith. Monolith, you say? Monolith, I say. So there is a giant rock on the surface of Phobos uh, against the relatively smooth cratered background. And I mean smooth not because, uh, not because it's like a featureless surface. There are many craters, but it's not very craggy, if that makes any sense. It is, mm -hmm. uh, it is kind of dust-covered and dimpled, but not, uh, not, not sharp angles. And against this relatively smooth background, there is this rock that stands out like a white tower in the gray dust, and it shines really bright in the sun, and it casts this long, looming tail of shade across the ground behind it. And judging by the length of its shadow, some astronomers have estimated that this rock is about 90 meters tall, or about 300 feet and for this reason, some media outlets describe it as building-sized. I guess that's reasonable. If it's like 300 feet tall, it's like a small office building. Right. Um, but you're, you're also bringing to mind certain ideas about what it might be when you say it's building-sized. Yes. and That's like if I were to say it was it's giant robot-sized. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this rock has come to be known as the Phobos monolith, and it is one of the geologic features of our solar system that is genuinely exquisitely interesting, but, you know, like so many others, in many cases appreciated for all the wrong reasons. Uh, the, the It's Aliens crowd loves this rock. Now, why would that be? Well, a major point of departure here seems to be originally a C-SPAN clip. <laughs> Which is not where you might expect, um, you know, sort of conspiracy-minded uh, uh, ideas to originate from. C-SPAN, you know, generally pretty, uh, pretty dry and pretty by the numbers. Yeah, I, oh, I like C-SPAN. And actually, I would say there's nothing wrong with this clip. It's just people misinterpreting a clip mm. or selectively uh, quoting from a clip. So this originally, I think, aired in July of 2009. That's at least when the version I found was uploaded. But in this clip, the revered American astronaut Buzz Aldrin, who, uh, of course, along with Neil Armstrong, was one of the first two human beings to walk on the moon. That was during the Apollo 11 landing in 1969. He is being interviewed on the C-SPAN program Washington Journal, and I believe uh, this was in the context of originally talking about human colonization of Earth's moon, but Aldrin starts talking about the general impetus for exploration of looking at things that people find curious or inspiring about the, uh, about the solar system at large and using that sort of like uh, public rapture about strange and interesting features of the solar system to to motivate scientific exploration of them, uh, as opposed to just, say, returning to the moon exclusively. And Aldrin says, 
Quote, we should go boldly where man has not gone before, fly by the comets, visit asteroids, visit the moon of Mars. There's a monolith there, a very unusual structure on this little potato-shaped object that goes around Mars once in seven hours. When people find out about that, they're going to say, who put that there? Who put that there? Now, it seems like when the alien websites clip this out, they stop the quote right there, and then they you know, slap a headline on it like, Buzz Aldrin, let's slip the alien conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the next thing Aldrin says is, well, the universe put it there, or if you choose, God put it there. And then he moves on to other topics. You can look this clip up yourself. So obviously, uh, Aldrin is not alleging that this monolith is of artificial origin. He He's not only not alleging that, he's explicitly saying the exact opposite. It is of natural origin. But of course, that's not going to stop the usual suspects from using this clip as evidence of the alien cover-up conspiracy. Uh, and so, of course, the, the Internet's favorite hoax hype man and general disinformation source, Alex Jones, has it several times tried to suggest that Buzz Aldrin might be saying he believes it was made by aliens. Like uh, during a 2009 interview, and that might actually be the weirdest thing here, is that Alex Jones actually did do an interview with Buzz Aldrin in 2009. I guess at the time, nobody really knew who Alex Jones was. But during this interview, Jones tried to suggest that Buzz Aldrin might believe that this monolith was made by aliens. And in a more recent clip I found, Jones is saying that Aldrin actually told him in that 2009 interview that the Phobos monolith was, quote, sending a transmission and, quote, it's all Egypt, there's aliens and everything else. Oh, wow. It's all Egypt. Yeah, it's all Egypt, there's aliens and everything else. And I I saw that, I was like, what? What could he even be referring to? Like, I didn't believe that Aldrin had actually said that. But I wondered, like, what's he basing this claim on? So I said, what the heck? I'll actually look it up. And the result was hilarious. So again, the weirdest thing about this to me is that at some point, Alex Jones actually did interview the second person to walk on the moon. Um, But so in the interview, he does ask Aldrin about this, and Aldrin says the exact opposite of what Jones claims. So Jones asks him, uh, while, if I'm not mistaken, I think showing him a picture of the wrong object, I think he's showing him a picture of an object from the surface of Mars. Uh, But he says, what does this look like to you? And Aldrin responds, he says, it's a big, big, tall rock. Now I can say maybe it looks like a crude construction device by some creatures who practiced on Phobos and then landed in Egypt and built the pyramids. And then he starts laughing and says, I don't really believe that, but some people are liable to think that. So Aldrin is making fun of and then explicitly rejecting the claim that Jones attributes to him. Not only did he not say what Jones claims, he says literally exactly the opposite. This is interesting. Yeah, it's a real, real cherry picking of uh, <laughs> of it. You know, <laughs> like, Phobos like, picking. Yeah, yeah. Like, like he's saying, I'm not saying it's aliens at all. It's actually this, but he's. But then it's like he said the word aliens in the sentence, right? <laughs> well, so well, he's basically saying it's aliens. Well, the the claim that Jones is referring to there is Aldrin making fun of people like Alex Jones. He's saying, mm-hmm. like, you know, I could say that the this was uh, aliens practicing building the pyramids. And, I, you know, you have to admit, like, that idea, even though it, it raises additional questions, <laughs> is a fantastic idea. And you sure. should see why people would be drawn to it and want it to be true. I mean, what does it mean? What, what would it mean for ancient Egypt? What would it mean for life uh-huh. in our solar system? It brings so many sort of vague, half-formed, but promising science fiction ideas to mind. I have so many funny questions about oh, so here's one random thought. If there were actually a conspiracy to cover up the existence of an alien office building or a, a practice pyramid on the surface of Phobos, why would Buzz Aldrin know about it? Like, do all retired astronauts just get a regular digest of the alien cover up? You know, like they get a dossier every week. It's like, here's all the alien evidence we've covered up uh, in the past quarter. Well, I was thinking about this a little bit. On one hand, yeah, there's this kind of the loose idea that, well, they were they were part of the space exploration system, you know, so perhaps they have privileged information or they've been to space. So maybe they know about space, but, uh, you know, in, in secret ways. But then I also was thinking, well, maybe this goes back. Maybe this is deeper. Like maybe this connects to a lot of our mythological ideas about people who are 
you know, taken up that ascend into heaven, mm. you know, so here is, or, or have descended into the underworld. So here is a, a case where someone has literally traveled to what you could easily classify as another world. Right. Uh, they have yeah. traveled beyond our world to another and returned. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the lunar missions were, were incredible technological achievements and, and achievements of just of human courage and uh, ingenuity, uh, but they were not otherworldly journeys. But I wonder if the two, you know, become, uh, you know, wound together in the sort of the collective imagination. Like, uh, you know, I had, I have in the, you know, the time or two that we've been around uh, astronauts or spoken mm. to an astronaut, it has entered my mind, like, this person has left the Earth. Oh, yeah. You know, it, like in in a... Not in a you know I you know I know that I'm I'm talking to a, an, a, an accomplished human being mm. when we're doing this, but there's there's a part of me that is like this person's maybe not completely human anymore, like they're not completely of Earth because they have left Earth, you know, right? In a in an in a like unformed way. Yeah, th- this bipedal primate like me has been touched by the gods now. Yeah, yeah. yeah so nice. I wonder if you know, to to some extent, we we're sort of hardwired to make those connections due to our our myths and our uh, you know our religious um, uh, stories, etc. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I can see that tendency. I mean, again, I think with this kind of thing, the logic is very loose. And, and, and on one yeah. hand, I mean, I'd say with somebody like Alex Jones, I mean, he just this is just a person with a propensity to spread lies. But I would say, as for the the broader uh, tenacity of this misunderstanding about this object on the surface of Phobos. Uh, I, I think maybe part of the misunderstanding might just come from the word monolith. This would tie back to back into the idea you brought up when I was first introducing the subject about calling it building sized, which I mean, I mm-hmm. guess it is also calling it a monolith. I mean, it, this object does appear to be a monolith. That is a literally accurate description. It's a single piece of rock, but Unfortunately, by its association with 2001 A Space Odyssey, that word now has some baggage, you know, of of associations with artificial origin. Of course, there are tons of natural monoliths on Earth. The world is full of them. But when you say monolith, I think especially anybody who's who's ever seen a science fiction film uh, <laughs> right. or, or anything that has uh, any derivative of science fiction has, has is certainly aware of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And so you think yeah. of the monolith. Right. So if that's causing confusion for you, you could just say the huge rock on Phobos. Yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, whether or not you would expect a retired astronaut to have any special insight on this subject, it is absolutely false that Aldrin claimed that Phobos, the Phobos monolith was of artificial origin. He said the exact opposite. So that leads to the question, what is its real origin? And I found a good article on the BBC from 2016 by Colin Barris that tried to look into this question. Okay, so given that there's this huge, weird-looking boulder jutting up out of the surface of, of Phobos, where did it come from? Well, again, according to our best images, the monolith does appear to be some kind of giant boulder. It's about 90 meters or roughly 300 feet tall, as I said, and it's on a surface region of Phobos that is otherwise uh, free of large craggy features like this. I I was trying to communicate exactly what I meant when I – smooth isn't quite the right word because it has all these craters and dimples in it. But the craters and everything look uh, relatively, I don't know, uh, rounded as as the – uh, surfaces of dusty objects in space often do. And this thing looks, uh, I guess you would say the angles appear uncharacteristically sharp. So imagine a, you know, office building sized boulder in the middle of a field in Kansas that otherwise has some kind of big soft craters in it. Now, the Phobos monolith has not really been the subject of much high-profile scientific study, but it seems consistent with surface features that are produced by normal natural processes on the surface of moons and planets. So this could be a giant boulder that fell off of, say, the edge of a crater in a a rock slide or something like that. And furthermore, there is pretty clear evidence that whatever Phobos itself is, it has at various points in the past experienced asteroids asteroid impacts. So the monolith could also be a giant shard of rock that was ejected from some past impact. But then uh, uh, Barris draws attention to another really interesting option, which is that the Phobos monolith could also possibly be a chunk of Mars itself. 
And uh, as, as evidence of this, he points to the precedent of a study by Kenneth R. Ramsley and James W. Head III, published in the journal Planetary and Space Science in 2013, called Mars Impact Ejecta in the Regolith of Phobos, Bulk Concentration and Distribution. Uh, basically, the idea is that the surface of Phobos is blanketed in little bits of Mars. Now, I think mostly these would just be very small particles, but they could include larger particles. And the authors estimate based on some calculations that the bulk concentration of Mars ejecta fragments in the upper Phobos regolith is about 250 parts per million. So if you're looking at the stuff on the surface of Phobos, uh, about 250 parts per million of that stuff is actually stuff that's from the planet Mars. And this, again, would come from uh, from impacts. Like uh, The majority of it is going to be smaller particles, but when objects strike the surface of Mars with high energy, bits of Mars sometimes get blasted into orbit, and some of those bits are going to end up settling on the surface of Phobos. Uh, and of course, this brings us back again to what we were talking about earlier. Remember that Phobos orbits very close to the surface of Mars compared to most moons. So you could imagine that it's easier for parts of Mars to end up on the surface of Phobos than it would be for parts of the surface of a planet to end up on a moon that's orbiting much farther away. Hmm. But Barris mentions another possibility, uh, writing, quote, Alternatively, the Phobos monolith might not have formed during an impact. It could be a rare chunk of the moon's solid bedrock poking up through a surface that is otherwise mostly strewn with loose debris. So imagine that kind of a devil's tower of Phobos, like poking up out of where everything else around it has, is covered with enough dust to look pretty smooth. And Barris writes that if this is true, if it's, you know, some uh, some feature of the underlying rock of Phobos, if it's a devil's tower kind of thing, uh, if this is true, studying the monolith could actually help us solve some of the mysteries about the origin of Phobos. Uh, like, where did these strange moons come from in the first place? Which I guess maybe we'll come back to at the beginning of, of part two of this series. But just a couple of other notes about the Phobos monolith. One is that it looks really cool and you should look it up, but uh, source your images carefully. I, it, I was coming across a lot of photos on the web that seem to be labeled as if they are the Phobos monolith, but I'm pretty sure they're not. Some of them just look like they're from a movie or something. I think others are pictures of things that are actually on the surface of Mars itself. Uh, but then one other thing I found out was that Les Claypool and Sean Ono Lennon have an album that is named after the Phobos monolith. Rob, I sent you a link. Did you have a chance to listen or not? <laughs> I have not had a chance to listen to it yet. I haven't heard any of Claypool's stuff with with Ono. I've, I'm, of course, I'm familiar with Primus and have, and have seen Primus uh, live, and I'm uh, I'm familiar with uh, his work with uh, uh, with, with uh, Trey Anastasio in Oysterhead. Oh yeah, I remember uh, that. Yeah, that's some good stuff there too. But no, I haven't I haven't heard uh, Phobos Monolith. Well, I only got to listen to a little bit, but it is very weird, but with less of the cheese-related humor that you associate with older Les Claypool works, it, it seems mm -hmm. a little uh, a little more sober, perhaps. Uh, and actually, a little, more sober? A, little okay. a little more sober, and has some relatively scientifically accurate lyrics. I can't vouch for the whole thing, but the part I was listening to was talking about the Phobos monolith and Buzz Aldrin, and I think everything that it said about the everything I recall it saying about the monolith and the moon was was scientifically correct. <laughs> Quote: The monolith of Phobos, it stares Buzz in the eye. It bids him question why we live and do or die. Okay, checks out. <laughs> Wait. Wait, that's not the part I was thinking. Maybe that went by me. I, I remember him talking about – he had some part about the moon being sort of tater-shaped, which seems reasonable, even though we, I've yep. said maybe turnip is better. And I think he also uh, mentioned that its orbit is decaying over time, so it's moving closer to Mars, which is true. Yeah, yeah. Well, the next two uh, lines are the monolith of Phobos. It stares Buzz in the eye on a tater-shaped moon that's falling from the sky. Okay. So that, that, that's, that's more accurate, yeah. And, and then there's also some part about, like, it, it doesn't say it's aliens. It just says that, like, the monolith raises a bunch of questions, which is true. It does raise questions. It, uh, some genuine and uh, scientific, uh, others <laughs> not so much. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, still, I mean, it, it, it is something, like, the, the monolith of Phobos is real, as we've said. Uh, you just need to be, be careful about what image you're you're pulling up of it and, uh, and what interpretation you're reading uh, regarding it. Now, as we've mentioned already, one of the biggest mysteries about Phobos and Deimos is 
where these moons come from in the first place. What is their origin? Uh, because they have a number of features that seem to be, uh, at least on the surface level, contradictory and point off in yeah. different directions when you're looking for an origin story. And I think maybe that's where we should start when we come back in part two. Where do these moons come from and how were they made? Yeah, so so join us. There'll also be some, um, some at least from today's uh, standpoint, kind of out there sounding uh, hypotheses about uh, about what uh, what what the, these moons are. Uh, so it'll be it'll be fun. So join us in our next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind as we continue our exploration of Phobos and Deimos, the moons of Mars. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. Core episodes come out Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Mondays we do a bit of listener mail. Wednesdays. Uh, that's when we do the artifact. On Fridays, we do a little Weird House Cinema where we, we set most of the science aside and just talk about a weird movie. And uh, on the weekend, we do a little bit of uh, a little vault episode. We do a little rerun uh, for you. So uh, that's what, six days out of seven. And on the seventh day, we rest. Or we run an ad sometimes. Or, you know, how Or we, <laughs> we get ready for the first day again. Yes. All right. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.